Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. We're your hosts, Emma Fabriguet and Jen Marcocci. For today's wrap-up, we're talking about money laundering, West Papuan rally for independence, France's Muslim Charter of Republican Values, and the Security Council's negligence on Iran's scientist killing. Let's get into it. In recent months, Australia's Westpac Bank took on a $1.3 billion fine, a much heftier fine than the 2018 Commonwealth Bank of $700 million, by the financial crime agency Austrac, claiming that it was not doing enough to stop criminals laundering money and financial terrorism. These fines were processed under the AML-CTF laws. In response, banks, in fear of taking on any more fines, particularly during these times of economic hardship, have taken a rigid approach, closing down bank accounts and refusing new openings by remittance businesses that send money to countries affected by local conflicts, such as states within Africa or where terrorist organisations are prominent. How can we distinguish between money laundering and legal remittance? Well, first let me define the two. Remittance is by definition the action of sending money as payment or gift, which is commonly referred to foreign workers that transfer money to their home countries for their families as financial support. There are immense benefits to remittance as it is a major cash flow to developing countries, competing with international financial aid. On the other hand, you have money laundering remittance, the illegal process of concealing the origins of money obtained illegally by passing it through a complex sequence of banking transfers or commercial transactions. While some may launder money for personal benefits, some are with the intent of financing illegal or terrorist organizations. The issue the state and its agencies face is the complex and anonymous nature of money laundering, making it difficult and costly to track thus near impossible to distinguish a glance from the legal and illegal. You mentioned that the fines were processed under AML-CTF laws. Could you clarify what those are? Certainly. So the AML-CTF is an act that was passed in 2006 in Australia, which stands for the Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorism Financing. It's a pillar of Australian government legislation that regulates Austrac's functions. Its basic utility is to require businesses to put in place appropriate controls to make it harder for them to be used to launder money. And when they are or suspect they are being used to launder money, report it to the authorities. The AML-CTF Act provides a list of designated services, such as opening an account or making a deposit. Before receiving any of these designated services, customers will be required to provide proof of identity or similar documentation. They check this with any new accounts ranging from personal to government bodies. Banks are required to have a dedicated AML-CTF officer who is trained to monitor, assess and report suspicious transactions. What has this meant for people that are simply trying to send money to their families? So as I mentioned at the beginning, major banks have closed down several accounts that they deem suspicious, even if they have no proof of illegal money laundering, in heightened fears or further Austrac fines. Furthermore, they have limited the amount of accounts being opened by remittance businesses, which has left these businesses without means of making transactions to their home countries. On an individual level, this has meant that families that rely on money from their overseas members has been cut off from an income that are essential for their survival. 
Not only has this caused major frustration to businesses that have complied with the AML CTF laws and regulations, but also leaves customers dealing with physical cash to send money in riskier and less transparent ways outside of the government oversight, increasing the likelihood of desperate customers using unregistered, unlicensed online operators. On an international level, it is severely affecting third world countries that heavily rely on foreign cash flow, which is the case of South Sudan and Lebanon, which account for 35 to 36% of their annual GDP. The final verdict lies on how the state and international can work together in establishing better practices and monitoring illegal transfers while encouraging and protecting those that abide by the laws. To bundle all businesses with remittance in a bad basket will only hamper international businesses' transactions that are more pressing than ever. I feel like the banks are always in trouble with stuff like that. Now we can move on to the height of tensions in West Papua. So Papuans are rallying and declaring a road to independence from Indonesia. Rallies were held across at least eight cities in Indonesia last Tuesday to renew calls for independence. A separatist group declared it had established a provisional government in exile. The provinces of Papua and West Papua are collectively known as independent activists, as Papua and West Papua form the western half of the island of New Guinea. So what prompted the rallies? Well, the demonstrations marked the anniversary of West Papua declaring independence from Dutch rule in 1961, which was followed by a contentious UN-sanctioned referendum in 1969 that brought Papua under Indonesian control. Among more than 100 students who marched in the capital of Jakarta, Papuan Roland Levy said the date remains significant decades on from that UN-sanctioned referendum. Some Papuans regard the 1969 plebiscite as unfair and say intimidation was used to influence the outcome, but Jakarta rejects this claim. So who is behind the protests? The protests coincide with a declaration from the United Liberation Movement of West Papua that a provisional government in waiting had been formed and is led by independent figure Benny Wender. Wenda is Britain-based, but said the group would push for independence and no longer, quote, bow down to Jakarta's illegal marital rule. They have also outlined a new constitution on December 1 as the contested Indonesian province marked Independence Day. And what is the Indonesian government saying? So a spokesman for the Indonesian foreign minister paid little attention to what he described as Mr. Wenda's self-proclaimed status. The status of Papua as part of Indonesia, the successor state of the Netherlands, East Indies, is final, he said, referring to the former colonial power. He said the integration processes were supervised by the United Nations and included the adoption of a resolution. Is this the height of tension or has there been much tension before this? Papua has been plagued by separatist conflict for decades and access for foreign journalists is often restricted. In the past year, there have been sporadic and deadly attacks involving security forces and indigenous Papuans, including the death of several Papuan miners and a pasture in recent months. The UN human rights body last Monday expressed concern over the reports, extrajudicial killings and escalating violence in the region. Home to almost 250 tribes, West Papua 
and Indonesia's control of the provinces has been a cause of tensions among Indigenous locals for decades. Mr Wendar even called on Australia to play its role in supporting the movement and helping West Papua on its road to independence. That's fascinating. I actually had no about idea about this, so it's a good piece of history there. Mm. Now, I wanted to talk about France's Muslim Charter of Republican Values. So basically, France's Muslim Council will be meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron this week to confirm the text of a new Charter of Republican Values for imams in the country to sign. The Muslim Council is comprised of the nine major Muslim associations and has been asked by the French government to create a register of imams in France that agree to the Charter, which has been asked to include in the text recognition of France's Republican values, rejection of Islam as a political movement, and a ban on foreign influence. The incentive for these proposals to be accepted is that it will grant the Muslim Council accreditation. The French state is a secular one, so why would it be getting involved in religious affairs? So you actually bring up a good point, and there has been some discussion around the state's role, and to some extent questioning in pressuring religious entities to conform the political realities. However, in the eyes of the French state, it has come as an exception to the rule. You see, France has the largest Muslim community in all of Europe, accounting to approximately 5 million. And with the rise of religious terrorism targeted in France since 2016, the government has been pressured in finding better ways to stop the spread of political Islam without interfering with the religion itself as a practice. The diversity within the Muslim community itself has made it a difficult and fragile issue to target, which has received some inevitable backlash. The main issues raised about the Charter is that it has been interpreted as discrimination because it targets only Muslim preachers and neglects the right to freedom of religion. Some, on the other hand, who preach a more reform Islam have indicated that the Charter is simply a reaction to the increasing terrorist acts by extremists, which have inevitably put pressure on the government and its role to protect its citizens. One reformist imam, noted, in quote, we have to go the extra mile to show that we are well integrated, that we respect the law, and this is the price we have to pay because of the extremists, end quote. But won't this have the opposite effect and only push for more violence? So it's important to remember that extremism is found in any religion and also makes up only a minuscule percentage of the Muslim community. However, there is the concern that this charter will, like you say, not directly target or have an impact on decreasing extremism and, if anything, inflaming it. On the other side, some have championed the government's efforts that aim to contain foreign influence, prevent violence and threats from extremism, and win back young people who feel forgotten by the state. We are always looking for new writers. Whether you're here in Melbourne or abroad, visit us at our website, theyoungdiplomats.com, under the Get Involved tab to find out more. The President has proposed to introduce and support the implementation of more Arabic-speaking teaching in state schools and increase government financial assistance to run down areas to help target Islamists who reject France's laws and values. Some recommendations have been made to also include Muslims in the governmental process of this charter to better assist in the dissemination of these new ideas, but also show support among the Muslim community. Yeah, that's so interesting. I guess they're just trying to um, do their best. Now we can move on to why the Security Council is unlikely to act on the Iranian scientists' killing, which happened recently. 
So just hours after the assassination of a top Iranian nuclear scientist, Tehran demanded the United Nations Security Council condemn the killing and take action against those responsible. But diplomats say the call is likely to go unheeded. So how was he killed? So the secretary of the Iranian Supreme National Security Council made the comments at the funeral for Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, quoting, The operation was very complex and took place using electronic devices, and no one was actually present at the scene, he told Iranian media. He blamed Israel, which has not commented on the killing, and said an Iranian opposition group in exile called Mujahideen i Kalk had also played a role. However, he did not provide evidence to back up this claim. So how could the Security Council react? Well, at a minimum, the 15-member body could discuss the killing behind closed doors if a member requests such a meeting, or it could agree on, by consensus, a statement on the issue. But Africa's UN ambassador, Jerry Matjila, council president for December, said on Tuesday that no member had so far requested to discuss the killing or Iran in general. Diplomats also said there had been no discussion of a statement. The Security Council has the responsibility to maintain international peace and security and has the ability to authorise military action and impose sanctions. But such measures require at least nine votes in favour and no vetoes by the United States, France, Britain, Russia or China. So why is this little action taking place? Well, the United States traditionally shields Israel from any action at the Security Council, so they'd be most likely to veto any votes. Washington has declined to even comment on the assassination of the scientists, and the UN investigator on extrajudicial executions, Arjun Kalamad, said that many questions surround the killing of Fakhrizadeh but noted the definition of an extraterritorial targeted killing outside of an armed conflict, meaning that such a killing was actually a violation of international human rights law, prohibiting the arbitration deprivation of life and a violation of the UN Charter, prohibiting the use of forced extraterritorial in times of peace. Iran also addressed a letter to the UN Security General Antonio Guterres and in response Guterres urged restraint and condemned any assassination or judicial killing. The Security Council is due to meet on December 22 for its biannual meeting on compliance with a resolution that enshrines a 2015 nuclear accord between world powers and Iran, which US President Donald Trump administration quit in 2018. So any member of the council or Iran could choose to rise to the discussion, the killing of the scientists during that meeting. So I guess we'll see what happens on December 22nd if it actually ever gets brought up. What an interesting piece of news. Well, guys, thanks for listening to our bi-monthly news wrap-up and make sure to check in for our upcoming trailblazers and in-depth episodes. Bye. Bye. Bye.